recall burying anybody down there? No. I don't recall, recall anything at all about a body being down there, John. For what reason? I don't know. But when we read some of these statements, I you remember you t you, you draw a map for them, you show them where the bodies are, and then you tell them you can't remember, and I, it just drives me up a wall. I want to know. When I drew the map again, one of these I things, one of these statements, and I'm not. <clears throat> one of the statements um, regarding the map, when you do the map. One of the statements when you drew the map, John, was taken on December 22nd. 5.15 p.m. That's after you were arraigned and after you had been in custody. At what time in the morning? 5.15 p.m. on December 22nd. That means you had been in custody 24, 29 hours already. Okay, from noon on the 21st up until the time of this statement. Sam Amaranti was not here. Nobody else was there at the time of the statement either. It was after you were arraigned. Oh, this was on a Friday. And, and it was know. 29 hours after you'd been in custody. You had no access to drugs or alcohol. And you made the statement to him. And you drew a map. Well, as I told you before, I don't even remember the first three days of being here. Reporting officer then asked Casey if he could explain where the bodies were in the crawl space. He tried to describe it and was having a difficult time in telling us exactly where the bodies were buried and asked if he could draw us a diagram. All right, at any rate, you draw, draw a diagram. Then after that, you tensed up for about 30 seconds and made reference to Jack, saying that he must have drawn it. Do you remember this statement? No. It was... Uh, I don't remember giving him any statements without Sam being present. Yeah, this one was given to Albrecht. Sam was not present. That was 5.15 on December 22nd. This one was the one taken 22.30 hours, which would be 10.30 on the 21st of December. That's the time you're coming back from the hospital. All right? You're coming back to the hospital. They get you in the room. They talk to you. That hour that they wouldn't let Sam in, this is what you give them. And this statement talks about peace. We'll read them all later. Uh... You've got to tell me, and I'm going to ask you this. I mean, you've got to tell me if you remember. I want to, okay, I'm going to, I've got to tell you, John, if you, if you pick up vibes from me, you know, if you think that I'm um, leading you or the defense, if you think you've picked out my theory of this defense and you're trying to help it by withholding information from me or any other way, it's going to damage you. I mean, you've got to be totally first, honest. First of all, you've you got to be. It's the most important right. thing. Bob, you know, you, if you would slow down and listen once in a while when I say something, you'd understand. I'm, I'm telling you, 
the way I don't recall. I don't even recall the goddamn statement that I gave. Remember, Sam said there was an there was an hour missing. I said I don't recall if I talked to anybody that hour. Then I had told you that I recalled that there was somebody in the room with me, but I don't remember what I said. It's not that I don't want to remember. I want to give you as much information as possible, but you guys don't seem to understand. I don't remember. I don't remember. I understand what you're saying, say. and okay, I understand, understand that you're saying that you don't remember, but me. I'm going to keep asking you the well, same question over and over and over again. It's fine for you to I've keep got asking, to do it. What I got to tell you is the same guy. You want me to find something out? You don't remember? I'm going to keep asking you. Well, that's, that's you're going to get pissed off at me. That's the only way I'm, I'm going to be I'm able to find out what's on your mind. I don't care if you get pissed off. I'm not mad at you. I'm just trying to tell you that you don't seem to understand. At the time. At the time I went to the hospital, I must have had 130 milligrams of Valium in my system. Okay. Can I tell you something? I don't, I, everything is hazy. I, you know, I, I can, I know I was walking around. I know I went to the courtroom. I don't recall talking to my sister. I don't recall talking to anybody or giving anybody any statements. I know Sam had told me not to give anybody any statements. I don't see any reason why I did it. If I did it. I don't recall it. I'm trying to tell you that. I'm, I know you've told me that. No, no, the thing of it is, is that... That might explain this one, all right? This is the one at 10.30 on the 21st, all right? It also might explain the one when Sam was there, because it was just a short while after that that you, in essence, repeated the same thing with Sam there. In essence, what they did was set Sam up. You know, they get you, they get all this fucking information out of you already. They knew, all right? They knew, they questioned you without a lawyer there, I don't know... They say in here they gave you your rights. They say you knew all about it. You were loose and no, you talked, okay? Then Sam gets there, okay? Here's the picture. He walks in. They walk out and say, oh, Sam, your guy wants to talk. All right? At that point, they already had your statement. Well, then they were only going to a formality. Of, sure, of course. In of course. Of, in front of my lawyer. All right. So maybe we can explain those two away. But the one that bothers me the most is the one at 5.15 on December 22nd, John. I mean, that's 29 hours after you're in custody. And I'm trying to tell you, 29 hours don't mean shit to me because I don't remember being processed into this building. I, I remember coming up, and I, I think I was in a room on that side of the hall across from this room here. I'm not even sure if I was in that room. The only reason I was able to patch it in is because that Eddie and Alan were in the back in those orange cages, and they brought them both up here into this room here, and they moved me back into there. I, I, I can remember it vaguely, but I, I don't remember as to why I would move from that room back to that room. Did you know why you were being held? At that time? Yes. Yeah, I think I, I was understand tired. understand what the problem was. No, why I don't, I don't know. I, I, couldn't, I don't understand how the hell they, they could hold me for a murder charge when they had no body. Did you? Anybody, I was being charged with a peace murder as far as I know. Right. Okay, I was being charged with a peace murder. I went before an arraignment. I don't even understand what the hell happened at the arraignment. Why wasn't I given bond at that time? Diaries. I'm your host, Bob Mata. This is episode nine, What Could Have Been. 
What you just heard there is my father absolutely skewering John Wayne Gacy in regards to the five statements that he proceeded to make after his arrest on the 21st of December. Remember, I told you earlier in the season that Gacy was the ultimate player of the game of cat and mouse, and that was not limited to law enforcement. It continued on throughout his pretrial and trial stages. My father was constantly continuing to try to catch Gacy in lies from one moment to the next. It makes for a fascinating back and forth. In episode 10, we will be breaking down these statements that Gacy gives over roughly 30 hours while represented by counsel to Mike Albrecht and the boys down at the station. Now, if you've been listening to this podcast from the beginning, you know that last week we dropped an absolute bombshell regarding the evidence, arrest, and search of Gacy's home on the 21st of December. If you haven't been listening to this podcast and you're jumping in on this episode, stop and go back to episode one. This is a serialized podcast, and if you haven't heard what has preceded this episode, you will have a very difficult time understanding what is transpiring. We promise you, this podcast is not bringing you the Gacy narrative that you have heard for the past 40 years. The focus of this episode will be to revisit the stunning revelation about the photo receipt and some of the aftermath that occurred once the episode dropped. Now, we dropped on June 29th in the early morning hours, and on July 2nd, I appeared on Superstation WGN's morning show with reporter Larry Potash. Now, Larry had told me ahead of time that they were trying to schedule former ASA Terry Sullivan. Yes, the same Terry Sullivan that we've been trying to interview since we started the podcast, as he is the legal analyst for WGN. This, of course, excited me as I've been chopping at the bit to interview this man. For those of you who may have caught it when it aired, well, you're about to hear it again. For those of you who didn't, this is how it went down, courtesy of WGN News. Well, there's a new podcast that is re-examining the investigation of serial killer John Wayne Gacy. And in the most recent episode, the host profiles a story about the key evidence in the case that he says isn't the story we've come to know. Gacy killed 33 young men and boys and buried most of them in the crawl space under his home in the late 1970s. He was executed in 1994. His defense attorneys were Sam Amarante and Bob Mata. Mr. Mata's son, Bob, is also an attorney and the host of the podcast. It's called Defense Diaries. Uh, WGN legal analyst Terry Sullivan is one of the prosecutors in the case, and we will talk to him in a moment. But first, uh, let's bring in Bob. Bob, good morning. Thank you for joining us this morning. Morning, Larry. Thanks for having me. Bob, let me let me set this up for, for people, because this is obviously a very complicated case. As many viewers will recall, uh, Rob Peace was the victim uh, that broke the case open, and the key evidence that did that was a photo receipt from the drugstore where he worked, the lieutenant on the scene says he found it in Gacy's kitchen trash can, and that opened up everything. So, Bob, what did you learn about this key piece of evidence? So, Larry, uh, to bottom line it, uh, during the course of my interviews with all of the uh, various officers that were involved with the case back in 1978-79, during their investigation, um, what they started to disclose to me, and, and I have to be honest, I, I wasn't going in looking for this kind of information. They started disclosing to me that the, the evidence that was found 
that photo was specifically was not found in the in the house, and it's that's relevant and important because it was the only piece of evidence that they had that went to two piece at all. There, there was nothing else that existed. So the officer started telling me one by one, and I don't know why they disclosed it the, the secret after forty years, but they started letting me know that, that they were told that that receipt was actually found out in Gacy's garbage that was left out on the front, uh, on the front lawn, the garbage pickup. Um, I don't know necessarily whether that's actually the case, but that is certainly the, the story that the bosses, uh, specifically, I think, uh, Lieutenant Kozenzak, uh was relaying to the guys that were actually handling the investigation. All yeah. the guys so, that- so, Bob, you learned that the, the photo receipt wasn't even listed on any of the chain of custody evidence documents that you looked at. So you say the receipt was found in the garbage outside instead of in the house. But so what difference would that make? Well, it, it makes all the difference in the world in terms of when they went in to... Uh, Judge Marvin Peters to get the warrant on the 21st, which is the warrant in which they went in the house and discovered the, the first set of bones in the house. That entire warrant was based on two things. One, that photo receipt, and two, uh, one of the officers claiming that when he was in Gacy's house on the 19th, that he had smelled putrefied flesh. That also was fabricated. Um, and, and I have that coming directly from Carl Humbert, who was the evidence tech, who was actually in the crawl space on December 13th during the first search of Casey's house when they didn't find anything relating to peace. And he said definitively to me, and it's all on the podcast, all these interviews are on the podcast. It's not me theorizing. These are all facts. He said he smelled nothing that even came close to smelling like death. Hmm. Essentially, what we're talking about is the two main things that allowed them to get into Casey's house and get him arrested were fabricated and planted. So, Bob, let me ask you, in the end, uh, Gacy's guilty, he's executed, decades have passed. What's, what difference does it make at this point? Well, and it's a great question. First and foremost, if, if I'm lead prosecutor Bill Kunkel, who had absolutely nothing to do with any of this and was not aware of what was going on with this investigation, I'd be furious that they would have potentially handed him like a massive time bomb that could have exploded in his face at any moment. You know, the, the reality is, is that it was an insanity defense. My father and Sam just were not looking at the facts of the case in that sense. They were trying to prove that he was insane, not, not that he didn't crime. So the bottom line is, literally, what, what really has to be looked at is, yeah, Gacy's dead and gone, but every case that Kozenzak touched like any case that, that uh, there's been an exposure of policemen misconduct, such as uh, planted evidence or coerced confessions, they always have to go back and reopen everything that that cop has ever touched. So anybody who's sitting in prison for 30, 40 years who has, who has gotten out of prison, frankly, everything that Kozenzak touched because of this uh exposure of what happened in a case of this magnitude, every case that he ever touched has to be looked at. I mean, that's just a fact. Well, Bob, uh, we appreciate you joining us. It's very interesting. The podcast is called Defense Diaries. Terry Sullivan was a prosecutor in the Gacy case and uh, also WGN's legal analyst, and he joins us this morning. Terry, what are your thoughts on what you heard from uh, from Bob uh, from his podcast? Well, I appreciate what he said. Uh, 
I, I welcome uh, any any light into the case all the way along. After all, we didn't have DNA at the time. We didn't have a lot of the scientific Computers. stuff. <laughs> Pretty much, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, and and I don't think you're going to find anybody uh, who knows me who is going to say that there's anybody else who doesn't believe that somebody who's innocent should be in prison or certainly be put to death. But having said that, I don't agree with the darn thing that he says. Um, so if he, if he says he can't find any any evidence sheet that lists this photo receipt, uh, how would you, is that just a, a clerical error? Or are you saying that there, there could be some other missing evidence sheet or? Sure, there could be missing evidence sheets. Uh, first of all, all of the stuff that that was evidence after the trial went over to a factory, mm. basically a storage factory. I think maybe on Western or something like that. I can't remember. I've been there many times where they were all just in different boxes and who knows what could have yeah. happened to them. Let me ask, but, yeah. but also, that doesn't mean that it, that it wasn't inventoried. Yeah. It, and even if it wasn't inventoried, uh, which I don't believe, uh, even if it wasn't inventoried, his father tried the case along with Sam Amirani. They certainly would have challenged the fact that the thing wasn't inventoried if, in fact, it hadn't been inventoried. And there was no such challenge. Let me ask you, Terry, uh, sure. as we've discussed, this is, a, this is a complicated case that goes in a, a million directions, and we're talking about it after 40 years. Is there something you want to know that's bothered you after these four decades about this case? Or do you feel like you can you put this to rest? I pretty much put it away. Um, it, it never really stuck with me that much as a lot of people thought it might. Um, I never had a nightmare. Let's don't start now. Um, and I and I never um, um, second guessed anything unless it was brought up uh, here or in court of law. And certainly, I, I respect if, in fact, it's brought up. But uh, to say that, to, to try to say that Kim Byers, who at that time was innocent. Um, she was the one that provided the photo receipt. Right. Yeah. And she was, I think, 16 at the time, working in a drugstore. To, to say that she would, be, would come up with a cock and bull story um, is ludicrous. She was as, as she, and by the way, she's a doctor now out yeah. in California. Yeah. And uh, to say that the Displains Police Department at that time would have gone to her and say, hey, make up this story yeah. to say that Rob had your coat, when in fact the coat was found there. And you don't buy it. I don't buy it all at right. all. And the other, the last thing, Larry, is yeah, in relation quick. in relation to the um, the garbage where where uh, Lieutenant Kozak says he found the receipt. He says he found it in the kitchen. The other officers now are telling Mr. Mata that, in fact, they were told to get garbage from the outside. That doesn't mean there weren't two, three, four different receptacles and that they didn't get that, package it, mm. and take it into the station for inventory. Well, people can listen to Defense Diaries in the podcast uh, to get all the details of that case. But, Terry... I think you're the first guest we've had. So there it is. You heard me try and cram in what I've been breaking down for three episodes into approximately four minutes. 
And then they let Terry respond to what he had just heard. And I, of course, was not allowed to ask him anything in rebuttal to his seemingly completely off-the-mark response to the stunning revelation that the photo receipt was planted and the smell story was completely fabricated. While I was not given the opportunity to respond to Terry on that show, it matters not, because I will respond to him on this show for the people that matter. Yes, I'm talking about you. Now, we realize that we threw a lot at you in episodes six through eight. And if you weren't listening to the episode in binge fashion, taking in all of the information piecemeal may have made it difficult to process exactly what occurred and why, after all of this time, it still matters. In consideration of that, we're going to provide a cliff note version of the timeline in direct rebuttal to what Sullivan said in that interview. So on December 11th, Rob Peast leaves Nissan Pharmacy, saying that he is talking to the contractor guy about a summer job. As we know, Rob never shows back up at home, and by 10.30, the Peast family is at the Desplaines Police Department making a missing persons report. On the morning of December 12th, Lieutenant Kozenzak forms the team that will investigate Rob's disappearance. It is learned in very short order from one of the owners of the pharmacy that the contractor guy is a man named John Wayne Gacy. Shortly thereafter, Detective Tovar runs a background on Gacy and gets a ding that he was convicted of a sodomy charge of an underage youth in Iowa in 1968. He was sentenced to 10 years. He did 18 months. Based on this, Gacy becomes the primary suspect. Also on the 12th, Detective Ron Adams contacts Kimberly Byers, one of Rob's co-workers who was present on the 11th. Adams first has a brief telephone conversation with her in the early morning hours, then conducts an in-person interview with her at Maine North High School. This interview lasts approximately 45 minutes and is exceptionally thorough. Adams takes handwritten notes, which are posted on our Patreon account, for you to review. Now, during this interview, there is no mention of Kim Byers wearing Rob's jacket on the 11th. And more importantly, there is no mention of her leaving the photo receipt in Rob's pocket. She does, however, state that Rob had a grape chapstick in his pocket, which would seem to substantiate that she did in fact wear Rob's jacket. However, the fact that she details the presence of the chapstick but does not bring up the photo receipt is very significant. At around noon on the 12th, Kozenzak pays a visit to Gacy at his home. He asks him about his whereabouts after he left the pharmacy and further inquires whether he was with Rob Peast on the 11th. Gacy states that he was not with Rob at any point on the 11th. Kozenzak in turn tells Gacy that he needs to come into the station to make a written statement. Gacy tells him that he will but that it will have to be later because he's dealing with the death in the family. Gacy ultimately shows up to the police station at about 3 a.m. on the 13th. The officer on duty notes that Gacy's pants and shoes are covered in mud. Kozenzak is left for the night, and Gacy is instructed to return later in the day, which he does around noon. On the 13th, Gacy returns to the station and proceeds to be questioned and prepares a written statement wherein he denies any involvement with the Peast Boy. While this is happening, Kozenzak and Sheriff's Investigator Greg Bedeau are preparing a complaint for search warrant of Gacy's home. The complaint is then reviewed by ASA Terry Sullivan and then is brought before Judge Marvin Peters, who grants the warrant, determining that the sodomy charge and the statements that Rob said he was leaving to meet the contractor were enough to establish probable cause for the warrant to issue. 
While Gacy is in the station, the search of his home is conducted by Detectives Tovar, Adams, Kautz, Pickell, Kozenzak, and evidence tech Carl Humbert of the Cook County Sheriff's Police. Now, Humbert is tasked with creating the evidence property log, thereby creating the chain of custody for any and all evidence recovered during that search. The search of Gacy's home is conducted for approximately two hours. Various items are recovered, most notably a class ring bearing the initials JAS, which was found in a jewelry box located on Gacy's dresser. A three-foot length of rope and a plastic wallet insert are found in Gacy's kitchen garbage can. The rope is found by Adams. The wallet insert is found by Humbert. Both are assigned item numbers, are photographed and bagged to be sent to the state lab. Humbert describes all items found in his narrative. The photo receipt is not listed, nor is it photographed, nor is it described in Humbert's narrative. Um, and if I had seen it, you know, if it was something that we recovered, I'm sure that my photo listing sheet, I have some sort of, either in my report, I'll indicate what was recovered, or I may have photographed the material. Now, I don't recall exactly. But, um, you know, if that doesn't show up in my report, then I was unaware of it that night. And nobody spoke to me about anything like that. So, and we, we collected the stuff we collected, and, and that was, you know, we documented it, as we always do. And that was the end of that story. During this search, Humbert also enters the crawl space to look around. At that time, he does not detect the smell of putrefied flesh at all. So the search of Gacy's home on the 13th nets no evidence linking Rob being in Gacy's home. Yet, at some point on the 19th of December, the decision is made to inject the photo receipt into a property evidence log that would be used at trial indicating that the photo receipt was recovered by Kozenzak during the search on the 13th from Gacy's kitchen garbage. So what we know from the police reports is that from the 13th of December until the 18th of December, detectives continue to investigate every aspect of Gacy's life, and every move is tracked by the surveillance team. However, notably absent during this six-day period is that there is no mention of the photo receipt in any of the reports, there's no indication that a follow-up took place at Nissan Pharmacy to determine who in fact turned the film in to be developed. And further, there is no report stating that a follow-up interview with Kim Byers was conducted, wherein she states she left the receipt in Rob's pocket. Well, that was actually later. That was a couple days after that, oh, in the so, garbage, yeah. So I understood it to be that that was on that original search. Was that on a second search? No, it was uh, Schultz got that receipt out of the garbage. When he went into the house? No, he when he put it out front. No shit. All right, tell me that story. <clears throat> well, I don't know if it's, uh, it was never brought up that way. Um, so I, I don't know if that's something that someone was. You know, that's a, that's a detail, I'm sorry, that I cannot remember. Okay. You know, and, and I'm not 100% sure, but I think Schultz got it out of the garbage. Thought that, that Schultz picked it up out of garbage in the front. And then I, I later heard, I think from Badeau or somebody, that it was, it was found in the first search warrant, but I didn't, re I I didn't know that for a fact. Sergeant Lang said that uh, they had found a receipt in the garbage for a film that Rob T's girlfriend had deposited uh, in the pharmacy, and that she was cold that night, and Rob gave her his jacket to wear because she was cold. She had gone into the pharmacy, deposited the film, put the receipt in the pocket of Rob P's jacket, 
When she gave him back the jacket at the end of the night, she forgot the receipt. She had left it in there. So that receipt proved that Gacy had contact with Rob Peace because it had been in his jacket pocket. So, but he said that due to circumstances, we were not to tell anybody about that. So for years, I never mentioned it to anybody. After Casey's execution, I figured, well, it doesn't really matter now. We can talk about it all we want. They can't resurrect him from the dead. You know, right. All the appeals had been appealed and the sentence had been carried out. But for that period of time, I never talked about it, told anybody about it. Uh, yes, we, and I don't know what day the garbage was, but I know that they had executed a search warrant prior to that. Now, I was never told about that. I was never told that they were going to claim that that receipt had been found in the execution of that search warrant. As to the best of my knowledge, yeah, that's what, uh, what happened. And that's why we were told, or myself in particular, were told not to talk about taking the garbage. Although, when I took the garbage, I asked the garbage, the, the guy that was loading the truck. I identified myself as a police officer, and I said, I want to take that bag of garbage, okay? He said, take all you want. You know? <laughs> he, he could have cared less, you know? So he set it down on the, uh, in the bin, and I just picked it right back up and put it in my car almost like a transfer from his hands to my hands. Then we get to December 19th. In Chapter 10 of Kozenzak's book, The Chicago Killer, he states that on the morning of the 19th, the Peace came to the station and informed him that they had been conducting their own investigation and that, quote, as the conversation was winding down, Mrs. Peace looked at me and mentioned Kim Byers, the girl who had worked with Rob at Nissan Pharmacy. Does she have any new information? I inquired. No, not really. She was just telling me that Rob had something of hers the day he went, yes, what was that? Well, it's a little complicated, Lieutenant. She says she got cold and she put on Rob's jacket while she was working. Then she decided to leave the film for developing. And well, she thinks she forgot and put the receipt in Rob's jacket because she's never seen it since. So I just thought that maybe it would help. You mean the jacket he was wearing when he disappeared? <laughs> yes, of course. Kim gave him back the jacket later, but she left her film receipt in his pocket. Wait one minute, I suddenly said, jumping up and bolted down the hall to the polygraph room. There, in a clear plastic bag, shining like a piece of gold, was the bright red receipt I had plucked out of Gacy's garbage bag. I brought it back to the piece and explained and then I called in Ron Adams and Walter Lang. This was the first and only piece of evidence we had showing that the Peast Boy had been in the house on Somerdale. I felt as if I had just dropped a noose around the bulky contractor's neck." End quote. Now, I have read this exact portion of Kozenzak's book in a previous episode, but now that we've discussed the planting of the evidence, it bears repeating because now you can hear in Kozenzak's own words, his account, and now you can try and read between the lines while filtering everything I just read through the knowledge that we possess that the evidence was in fact planted 
Now here's Ron Robinson once again telling us when he first hears about the receipt in the jacket story from his superiors. I would say that that would have been Lieutenant Kozenzak that had to make that call because, well, he's the decision maker. He was in charge of the investigation. So do I have first-hand knowledge of who made that decision? No. The only thing I have first-hand knowledge of is that Sergeant Wayne told me not to talk about it, you know. To who? Uh, to, like, who? His, his, not to don't talk, talk about, about it, it, period. To anyone? Not even your partners? Yeah. All right. Well, my partner knew about it because he was sitting there in the car when Wally was talking about it, when Wally told us. I believe Wally, Wally's actual words were, uh, you found, and he's saying I found the receipt, but I didn't. All I did was bag, grab the garbage. Okay. He said, you did, but you'll never get credit for it, was how he put it. So the decision had already been made that, no, we found this in the search warrant. So I picked up the bag of garbage. Wally picked it up from me, took it into the station. They went through all the garbage. They found the receipt. They contacted the person that the receipt uh, was made out to, and I, I have never read that receipt. I have never seen, I've seen a copy of it now, but uh, I never knew who that, to me it was a girlfriend of Robert Peace. Now back in the real world, Detective Adams and Piquel are taking a trip to Nissan to take a look at the pharmacy's photo receipt logbook. They inform Linda Mertz that they need to bring the logbook back to the station to make a copy of the sheet from the 11th of December. They take the book, and shortly thereafter, return a copy of the sheet from the 11th back to the pharmacy. Then, after they discover from the log sheet that they grabbed from Nissan that Kim Byers had, in fact, turned in a roll of film on the 11th, Detective Adams calls the buyer residence at about 6 o'clock p.m., speaks to Kim's mom, who informs him that she's at a swim meet and won't be home till around 8. He tells her, that he needs to speak to Kim, quote, in reference to photo receipt numbered 36119 that she left in Rob's jacket. Seed planted. At about 8.23 p.m., Kimberly Byers shows up at the police station with her father, and at about 8.29, she begins writing her written statement. Now, I'm not going to read the statement again as we've read it in its totality in episode 7. And we've also included it on the Patreon page. The one thing that I will say about Kim's statement is that she spends an inordinate amount of time trying to explain exactly why she would have left the receipt in Rob's pocket. Now remember, when Kim is writing this statement, she's sitting in a room with Detective Adams and most likely, Lieutenant Kozenzak. Now at this point, over the last three episodes, I think it's become abundantly clear that not only do we know that the receipt was not found in the home, but we do not believe that the receipt was found in the outside garbage either. If you take into consideration the fact that Ron Robinson is told after the bag from the garbage truck is taken from him, the entire narrative of the buyer's story of the receipt being left in Rob's jacket, three to four days before Kim Byers comes in and makes the written statement, or, if it's to be believed, three or four days before Mrs. Peast tells Kozenzak about Kim telling her about the receipt in the pocket, it begins to seem more and more likely 
that this entire narrative was cooked up in a back room of the Displains Police Department. In my opinion, Terry Sullivan didn't have any answers for anything that he heard from us. Now, I was told that he had listened to episode eight prior to doing his interview. And I have to tell you that towards the end of his segment, where he talks about the concept of Kim Byers coming up with a cock and bull story, or that the police went to her and told her to make up the entire receipt and the jacket story being ludicrous, well, that was incredibly telling. Why, you may ask? Well, because we've never stated that theory in any of our episodes. Sure, we've alluded there being gaping holes in the buyer's narrative, but we certainly never came out and said that that is what we believe happened. So the fact that Terry Sullivan said that, to me, speaks volumes. Why? Because that is exactly what we believe happened. Remember, what we uncovered last week is a fact. There was no clerical error. Yes, the receipt was put into evidence at trial. Yes, the receipt shows up on the evidence property log that was used at trial as item 12, which of course describes it being found in the kitchen garbage. And yes, Kozenzak testified in court to that exact same fact. And so did Kim Byers. We went through all the actual property evidence sheets that were prepared by Humbert and the cops during the investigation. And we cross-checked those sheets with the sheet that was entered into evidence at trial. We went through them item by item. And all of the items on the court document were present on the sheets prepared by the cops, except for, of course, the photo receipt. And there is no photograph that exists with the photo receipt laying in the kitchen garbage. Our theory is almost exactly what Terry Sullivan said that the piece learn of Kim turning in her role of film on the 11th. She then writes out the envelope and takes the receipt and does what any teenage kid would do. She sticks it in her pants pocket. Now, if you look at the picture of the receipt that we have posted at defensediaries.com or on our Patreon page, you can see where it's folded multiple times, looking like any piece of paper that would be shoved in your jeans pocket would look. The decision is made on the 19th, that based on the fact that they had zero evidence against Gacy with respect to Peace, and the Peace demanding that something be done because they know and Kozenzak knows that Gacy did it, even though they can't prove it. Kozenzak then directs Adams and Pakel to go to the pharmacy to get the logbook to verify that Kim actually did turn in the film on the 11th, which she did. And then the plan is formed. Kozenzak then starts brainstorming with parties unknown about a story that Kim placed the receipt in Rob's jacket. Kozenzak lands on that story as plausible, then directs Adams to call the buyers home to get Kim into the station to make a written statement. Being incredibly deliberate in telling Kim's mother that he needs to talk to Kim in reference to photo receipt 36119. The only way that he could have been more obvious is if he had just directly told Ms. Byers to make sure that Kim brought the receipt with her when she came to the station, which he very well may have. But he sure wasn't going to write that in his report. Kim gets there with her father, and they tell her, look, we all know Gacy did this to your friend, but we can't prove it. Do you want to help us get the man who killed your friend? What is she going to say? 
no? Of course not. So she either turns the receipt over to them right then and there, or they go with her to the house to pick it up. They then say, look, the defense attorneys are going to ask questions about why you would have put that in Rob's jacket. So you need to address that in your statement. There has to be a reason that you did that. So Kim, in her statement, spends half of the allotted space speculating about why she left it in Rob's pocket, forgetting the most plausible explanation of all, which would have been simply that I just wasn't thinking about it and I stuck it in there. Now, she doesn't say that, most likely because she wasn't wearing Rob's jacket at all, or even if she was, it changes nothing. And that's it. The cops have their evidence, finally. And they have a written statement that will corroborate the story of how it would ultimately have ended up in Gacy's house. Throw in the fabricated smell, and bingo, you've got your warrant. So that's our theory, and it completely adds up, especially when you consider that if they had that receipt any time prior to the 19th, they immediately would have gone to the pharmacy to see who had developed it. You don't have to be Sherlock Holmes to figure that move out. The fact that that never happened tells the tale. So since we dropped the episode, the question of did the ends justify the means became the first thing out of people's mouths that I spoke to about it. I think that many out there will think that it did because it resulted in stopping a monster. And that's fair. But I will say just this in order to sway you, possibly, as to why it's far from fair or far from okay. First, the Constitution. It applies to all of us, good or evil. We cannot start saying, well, this guy's an absolute savage and he must be stopped. So we're going to cheat here on this one to get our guy. No, we can't do that because just as in Gacy's case, Yes, they really liked him for peace, but they had no idea that he was the hideous killer of 33 boys when they decided to plant the evidence. So where's the line drawn on that slippery slope of who the Constitution protects and who it doesn't protect? And second, which is equally, if not more disturbing, is the fact which Sullivan brought up about how my father and Sam would have caught this at the time of trial, which they didn't, and why they didn't is because they were employing the insanity defense, which means that Gacy, by operation of law, had admitted committing the crimes and that the burden of the state was to prove that he was sane. And it was the responsibility of the defense to show that he was insane. So none of the underlying investigation that was performed by the police was of consequence to them at that point. They didn't need to dig into the investigation file like we did. And there is no way in hell that the cops would have admitted to them what they admitted to us about where the receipt was found. Yes, the state got incredibly lucky that Gacy, after he was charged, decided to spill his guts because that move made the only defense available to them the insanity defense. Had Gacy not confessed, I am 100% confident that the gaping holes in the chain of custody would have been discovered by his defense team. And once that occurred, a motion to suppress based on planted and fabricated evidence would have been filed 
and Judge Garippo would have had no choice but to grant it because even if he didn't, the appellate court would have reversed and remanded it. What does this mean? This means that every single bone taken out of Gacy's home would have been tainted as fruit of the poisonous tree. Everything would have been suppressed. Gacy would have walked. That is not an exaggeration. It's a fact. That is how massive the risk and ticking time bomb they handed Bill Kunkel was. He would have walked. I want you to think about that long and hard. And remember, if you're enjoying our show, you can show your support by visiting us at Patreon and becoming a member of the defense team. And that can be found at www.patreon.com backslash defense diaries. And there you'll find all kinds of cool content and things that just aren't available to other people that aren't members of the team. And for those of you who are already defense team members, thank you, thank you, thank you. We really, really appreciate the support. And finally, I want to give shout outs to all the people that make this show happen. First and foremost, Darren Wood, my amazing producer, who makes all the magic happen for me on a weekly basis. And Taras Horoluski, who does our amazing music, which we really love and we hope that you do too. And Ryan Gack, who mixes and masters it. Also, Alex Carver, who does all of our graphic design work. And also, Allison, my wife, who is so huge in what she does for us. Uh, she really does all the behind-the-scenes stuff to keep our show in the public eye as much as possible. So thank you, Allie, for all that you do. And finally, thank you, the listeners, who without your support and without you being there, I'd just be an old man talking about an old case. <laughs>